Thank you very much. Uh, well, good evening, history lovers, and welcome to the latest uh, History Ireland Head School. Uh, I'm your Head School Master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland magazine, and I presume you're all subscribers, so I, I won't labour that point. Um, now, um, we're here uh, this evening as part of the, the, the Railway Heritage Festival, which has been taking place over the weekend. Uh, the last train to Bundorn, 60th anniversary. So 60 years ago on this day, the last train pulled uh, out of uh, Bundorn Railway Station. So how had this uh, railway network developed? What was its contribution to the economy and society of the Northwest? Why was it closed? And what are the lessons for today? So we, we have uh, assembled an expert panel. On my left here, Mark Egan, who, who needs no introduction, author of uh, Border Town Blues, amongst other publications. Uh, on my far right, uh, Jonathan Barden, uh, amongst whose publications is A History of Ulster, one, one of many. And then beside me here, uh, immediately to my right, uh, Hugh Doherty, freelance journalist, uh, also author of The Bus Services of County Donegal uh, Railways. Now, um, Hugh, maybe I'll go to you first, uh, just to give us a picture of how the railway network developed, before we talk about its decline or whatever, but uh, you know, how long was it in the making? Well, the very first railway in Ireland was built in 1835 from Dublin to what they called Kingstown in those days, but we would call Dunleary. And from there, um, there was a development of the Ulster Railway from Belfast down to Portadown, and eventually the East Coast joined up all the way from Dublin to Belfast by the 1880s. And then you had the lines which went west and north. And what you found was that in the 1866, when the railway reached Bundorn, that was the time that most places that were going to get a standard gauge, that is, a heavy railway, were built. After that, the British government had a policy of killing nationalism by kindness, they thought. And Lord Balfour, who was the Secretary of State for Ireland, brought in the Light Railways Act of 1896, and that allowed railway lines to be built to more remote parts of Ireland. These were the famous narrow-gauge railways. And, of course, in Donegal, we had the County Donegal Railways, which ran from Ballyshannon to Donegal, eh, to Killybegs, all the way out to Glenties and up to Straban and Derry. And we had the, um, I think I'm allowed to say this, the London Derry, or I would say Derry, and Lost Willy Railway, which ran all the way out to Buttonport eventually. And... The, by that time, you found that the network was pretty complete. So you could actually reach more or less anywhere in Ireland. Your station at Bundorn was the gateway to Derry, Belfast, Dublin. And even in 1957, you could walk into Bundorn Railway Station and buy a through ticket to anywhere in the British Isles, including the whole of Britain. Uh, we don't have that level of connectivity now. So you have development of the railways. They're all built by private enterprise. And eventually, of course, they get into financial trouble, as we'll see, and they have to be nationalised. But that gives you a very quick outline of how the Irish railway system was built. Now, Hugh, just go back then. Who were the main companies? I mean, uh, mm. you know, uh, what sort of lines did they... And like, how did they join up or not join up, no. as the case may be? Well, the... Problem is that you have two sets of gauges, as we say, and the gauge is the width between the lines. The standard Irish railway gauge is five foot three inches, and it's five foot three inches because the very first railway, the the, the Dublin and Kingston, was built to four feet eight and a half, which is what you have in the British mainland and most of Europe. The Ulster railway was built to six feet 
two and a half. Obviously, they weren't going to meet. So the British government put a gentleman called Colonel Parsley, not Ian Paisley, but Colonel Parsley, uh, on the job. So he put the two gauges together and got an average and said, right, five feet three. And that's why you cannot run railway vehicles from anywhere else in Europe into Ireland. We are unique in Ireland with a five foot three gauge. Then they built the narrow gauge railways and they were three foot gauge. It's the same gauge in Australia, apparently, uh, Hugh, is that right? Five feet three, yes. So um, you could transport a, a wagon all just the way to Australia. Australia and, <laughs> and South America, because Irish engineers went to Australia and South America and they built the five foot three gauge. However, some of you might even remember the old County Donegal narrow gauge railway. At Straban, you had to get out the rail car and transfer across the Great Northern to go anywhere. And you had to transport all your goods. So it became very, very expensive to do that. So Donegal has always suffered from being a bit out in the limb on the railway system. And um, that, as you see today, we don't have any lines left at all. And I know we're going to discuss that in more detail. Um, John, can I bring you in here on just, if we just kind of pull back the folks a little bit uh, to look at... The, the sort of impact railways would have generally. I mean, what, what do we know about that on societies? Uh, first of all, uh, it's th there's the extraordinary speed of it. You, you've got the dates uh, on my left here. Um, it, it came in so fast in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and the result was that many local industries uh, were uh, destroyed very quickly. Um, you know, a, 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 a lot of uh, the locally produced uh, woolen cloth, for example. Uh, the domestic linen industry in Ulster and indeed in Mayo uh, was on its last legs anyway. It was killed off by the railway. The plus side was that uh, you now could transport uh, raw materials, as you saw with the Belique pottery, mm. uh, and fuel uh, to quite remote places. So you have a hu huge... Uh, linen factories springing up at places like Shrigley in County Down, Sion Mills, uh, Guildford in, uh, again in County Down, um, uh, Bestbrook, uh, uh, and of course, um, as well as that, it assisted, uh, to, it speeded up emigration, uh, partly by reducing the cost uh, uh, quite enormously, uh, though we still have people who uh, avoided going by rail. They walked all the way from Donegal to Belfast to go to Liverpool or, or to Glasgow. But uh, they could... You, you, uh, they could um, they, one of the last lines to be completed was to uh, uh, the Rosses in, in West Donegal and was finished in 1905. And there's a wonderful account. <coughs> it might be by Paddy de Cope. I'm not is sure. That narrow, is that narrow gauge? That's narrow yeah, gauge. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, what you had were migrant workers. They weren't immigrants. They were t in Scotland, they were known as tatty hokers because they'd go over to lift the potato harvest. Mm. And uh, uh, the, the railway, uh, uh, which took them to, to Derry, uh, um, had to put on cattle wagons because the carriages couldn't accommodate all the boys and girls who were going to go across and, and the young men going across to, to lift these potatoes. And even there, think the potato was not a crop that you could... Um, uh, it wasn't really a commercial crop until you had railways. The only way you could shift potatoes cheaply was by water until then. Mm. But um, and what happened was that the uh, um, Scottish merchants bought up entire potato plantations, you know, huge areas, and they said, right, we're buying the crop on spec and we're, bringing, we're going to Donegal, we have gaffers, we're going to raise uh, men and girls and we're going to get... Uh, um, 
people to look after them and we're going to put them up in bothies and, and uh, uh, then uh, when they made their money they sold gold sovereigns into the lining of their coats and came back to Atlantis or wherever they were going. Um, so, and, and then politically, think of that, I, I just think of various incidents, uh, think of Captain Boycott, the relief of Captain Boycott. Uh, what happened was that the, uh, they decided that Captain Boycott, having written to the Times newspaper saying that, he, that nobody would work for him, they raised 25 labourers in Cavan and 25 in Monaghan and gave each man a revolver and they put them on a special train, but the train then only went as far as Cross Malina. And not a single jaunting car would uh, carry any of these people. So they, they had to walk all the way from the station at Cross Malina to Loch Mask House, mm. uh, where they were put up, and uh, where Captain Boycott rather meanly uh, charged them uh, tuppence a stone for their potatoes. Uh, again, think of the Castle Dawson incident of 19, for, uh, 1912, which helped to precipitate the expulsion of Catholics from the shipyards. Uh, a Sunday school outing from, from North Belfast goes to Castle Dawson by train. It's all paid for by the parishioners and so on. Mm. But meanwhile, the nationalists of the uh, ancient order of Hibernians, they're having a big, big shindig in somewhere like Oma. But they go by train as well. And in spite of the fact that the priest said, I, we really don't want you to sell whiskey at this event, a lot of whiskey was consumed. So what you get are all these AOH men coming back into Castle Dawson and they're meeting up with these children who are about to get onto the, back onto the train and uh, uh, these children are carrying Union Jacks and, and uh, they've got biblical text and all this. So a fierce sectarian uh, battle occurred. The children, children, long, yeah. children were, were hiding <laughs> under bushes and all that they had to be rounded up. And when news of that travelled to the Belfast shipyards, the Catholics were driven out and you get the most ferocious, appalling uh, violence occurring thereafter. I'll just give you two examples. So that, that's how somebody got their, their train timetables wrong there. <laughs> right. Um, can I go to you, um, um, Mark, now, just to look, look at Bundorn, because uh, as the, the documentary said, really the, the, the railway made Bundorn. Uh, completely. It was a game changer for the town. It arrived in 1866, and by 1900, it was the most rapidly expanding town in Ulster. And uh, as Barra quite rightly said, it was two towns. It was basically the East End, West End, which is... Uh, the West End here was predominantly Protestant, and the um, with the big houses, and then uh, you had the um, the East End, which is predominantly Catholic. So you had this area in, in between, which this is Drumocrin, and basically the railway arrived there, and it kind of the two towns, um, hamlets, or if you will, they uh, fused together and became Bundoran. So it was, I mean, it. Bundoran exploded uh, with the railway, um, and you know, you could argue that it kind of a part of it died with the railway once it uh, once it went because I mean there's a report in the Shannon uh, that where they were saying that basically forty thousand visitors coming on a Sunday, you know what I mean? Which is um, I don't know if we've seen those numbers since, but uh, you know. No, tell tell me this. I mean, maybe John, you can come in this as well, or and Hugh is is this whole the relationship between rail and tourism? Because mm -hmm. by by then, by the middle of the nineteenth century, tourism as a phenomenon has has taken off. Yeah. And and Bundoran would be would have been ahead of the game. Oh, there. very much so. Yeah. Well, there was a, a travel writer in the mid nineteenth century, about eighteen fifty eight, and he said uh, Bundoran is beginning to exhibit a few Brightonian symptoms, and you can see that in the architecture on the seafront. And the other thing as well is that Bundoran, the GNR had uh, Warren Point as well, and there's a reason why um, 
the Butcher Boy, which was set in Bundoran partially, was filmed in Warren Point. That was because Warren Point had a bit more of that Georgian architecture going on, you know. So the two towns were very similar. But yeah, the the tourism and you know, I mean, to this day, uh, tourism is the the lifeblood of this town. You know, mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. they they work hard during the summer and then hibernate, you know, during the winter. Yes, uh, I, I mean. Um, uh, my father used to come to Bundoran before the First World War as a little boy with with, with the family. So that was, you know, it could all be done by rail. Mm. And um, other towns that developed, uh, for example, Greystones, uh, uh, south of Dublin, in, in, uh, south of Bray, it's in, in County uh, Wicklow, it suddenly became a, a flourishing uh, place because of tourism, because the trains could take you there. Uh, and places quite close, like Bangor, for example, is not all that far away from, from, from Belfast. But to many Belfast people, and to people from Glasgow, this is a great place to go. Warren Point, was of, uh, you've mentioned already. Um, so uh, certainly, uh, yes, uh, tourism uh, did wonders for certain, particularly seaside towns. And this is before the invention of neoprene and uh, um, <laughs> surf uh, wetsuits. But I mean, would you say though? I mean, that the tourism couldn't have developed without the railways. I mean, and otherwise, chicken or egg, like uh, you know, uh, which came first, tourism or the railways? Like, are they are they intertwined? Well, the tourism was uh, 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 very much the preserve of people who had money, and they, I mean, it cost an absolute fortune to travel by by stagecoach. You know, when Wolf Tone uh, was travelling from Dublin to Belfast, mm. uh, he was paying the equivalent of. Uh, uh, a month's, uh, a, a weaver's wage for a month just to travel right, up there. Right. Um, and railways didn't, railways often stimulated uh, horse and, and carriage uh, transport. It was quite interesting. That, that, um, or other kinds of transport. For example, you could tra travel up to the Giant's Causeway, but not all the way to the Giant's Causeway by railway. But then you got onto another rather unique railway, which was operated by electricity, um, which was powered by the Bush River. Uh, it was the, I think the, probably the first electric. Was it the first That's electric? Hydroelectric yeah. 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 uh, thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, you think they're reopening a place at Island McGee uh, called the Gobbins. Mm -hmm. And again, that was in, it, it. The Gobbins was developed as a tourist spot by the local railway. Just moving on the story here, uh, maybe Mark coming to you. Uh, Looking at the, the War of Independence, like what was happening this, in this neighbourhood? Yeah, um, well, uh, there was a quite a, an active uh, 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 group of volunteers in the area, and um, now because you had such a large garrison out at Finner, they didn't launch any major um, actions, uh, so to speak. But what they did, they actually targeted uh, the railway uh, quite a few times, and what they would do is remove like engine blocks and dump them in the river down the way. So that stopped the troop. Uh, movement and stuff like that and uh, actually I have a, a thing here from what is it uh, yeah uh, a local railway worker named Carty he received the following instructions from the government of the Irish Republic you are hereby notified that after this date you are forbidden to drive any train or assist in any way the transport of armed forces of the British government by order of Ministry of War and in conjunction with this then Thomas McShee um, he broke into the railway station, destroyed some of the engines along with some other volunteers, and the it was shut um, as a consequence. You know, so that was just like one example of uh, what was happening. Yeah. Um, so, Hugh, do you want to come in on that on on the the War of Independence? I mean, I mean, was it was it was it a 
was it part of the IRA strategy like to, to basically to sabotage it? Uh, very, very much so. And some people in the IRA did see that the railways had been put in not to help Ireland, but in fact to move the forces of the British Empire about an oppress Ireland. Um, when Lord Balfour built the railway, for example, all the way out to Burtonport, the local IRA spent a lot of time for the next 20 years trying to get rid of it. And I think that the railways became strategic even in the 1950s. Uh, when I travelled here uh, 60 years ago as a wee boy of six, in June 1957, all the stations all the way from Evanstown were sandbagged because of the 1950s IRA campaign. So the railways were seen as a way of moving troops about, and they were seen very much by the volunteers as an instrument of oppression which should be taken out. And it is true that many, many Irish railwaymen were very bravely refused to drive trains in what was called the 1921 munitions strike. And some of them were actually executed by the British for obeying the orders of the volunteers. Actually, Hugh, uh, Hugh I just want I just put up a map there, right? This is the, yeah. the network uh, yeah. in 25. Could you talk us through this? Just, I mean, like I see like Straban is the middle of it there. Yeah. Maybe just talk us from there uh, and just, uh, you know, where, you know, where, where goes what or whatever. Yeah, um, Straban was on what railway men called the Derry Road. And the Derry Road ran from Portadown all the way up to Derry through Dungannon, into Oma and all the way up through part of Donegal through Portal St. Johnson and into Derry and across the border doing that. Um, to the left of that, you've got the County Donegal and Lost Willie Railways. And if you look between Straban and Letterkenny, that was the last narrow gauge line built in Donegal in 1906. And it was built to link the two towns and to cut out Derry, if you like. The most northerly part on the, on the Donegal railway network was Carndona, which was built again by Lord Balfour as a British line to try to get things going in Inishowen. And it only lasted 35 years. Narrow, narrow gauge, all yeah. three foot yeah. gauge. Everything west of Straban, three foot gauge, apart from the line between Straban and Derry on the west bank of the Foyle. So... Donegal was always unique in that it was connected to the main system by a narrow gauge system and you had to transfer onto the narrow gauge and you had to move your goods and so on. Um, so yeah. you couldn't just travel right through. And the bit that's really interesting, and Shane was asking me, is if you went to Ballyshannon from Bandorn and the GNR, could you go on to the County Donegal's railways? And the answer is you couldn't because the systems were never connected and there was a mile and a half walk between the stations. And we know that excursion uh, trains from Belfast used to bring people on the County Donegal Railway. They transferred onto all the way down to Ballyshannon Station, the County Donegal, and they were met by a GNR porter who marched them in a crocodile on a health march through Ballyshannon and to the Ballyshannon station so they could get to Bindorn for the day. That's how disconnected it was. But okay, let's just go, let's go yeah. through that again, right? So, so uh, you could get the train from Bundorn yep. to Ballyshannon. Yep. And I, uh, that station was the back of my house when I, when oh, I lived yeah. there. Uh, now, looking at that map, it looks like you can take the train from Ballyshannon up to Rossnowla, up to Donegal Town, mm. etc., right? But you're saying you, you can't. You, you, you can't. No, you couldn't. You have to get off the train, uh, walk through the town, and mm. get on mm. back on the train. Yep. Where was the station on the north side of the town? Then? It was just where the Donegal Democrat offices are, if you know, up the hill uh, on the left-hand side. Uh, and there was quite an extensive station there. And every Sunday, the County Donegal Railways in the summer ran excursions from Straban and Stranorla, which were very, very popular. And hundreds of people would come down there. 
they'd be put in a JNR bus and they'd come into Bindor and then wreck the place. Sorry, and, and have a good time. <laughs> um, e even after the County Donegal Railways closed the railways, they carried running on buses till 1971. And the whole County Donegal bus fleet, as late as 1969, would actually take most of the town of Straban down to Bindor for the day. And the advantage was you didn't have to change because the bus ran all the way through. So... You had excursions, you had goods traffic. A lot of the people of, of, of my generation who came to Glasgow and, and my parents' generation started their journey to Glasgow on the County Donegal and Lost Willie Railway and also on this line to go to Derry to get what was called the Scotch boat and in Glasgow, the Derry boat, and it transported probably something over a period of 50 or 60 years, more or less half of Glasgow. And the most popular name in the Glasgow, the most common name in the Glasgow phone directory is my name, Doherty. And our ancestors all came by the railways from here. So you're absolutely right. They did bring uh, immigration, but they also brought, and you should, for your homework tonight, go home and Google up. Here's a school, you know. Here, here's a school. Go home and Google up Big Tom and the Mainliners, GNR Steam Train. Have you heard that song? If you haven't, go and do it because Big Tom sings of the GNR steam train and he tells how it took people to Bindorn and also took the pilgrims to Loch Derg to say their prayers. So it looked after you spiritually, it looked after you for fun and it brought everything you needed to your house. And you had at that time, up until 1957, until the lines began to close, an amazing level of connectivity. If you had a station in your town, you were connected up to the world. It was the internet of its age. Yeah, do you want to come in there, Mark? I did, yeah. Just uh, what Hugh's saying is right. Like, I mean, uh, in the 40s and 50s, you had um, the Glasgow fairs, which yeah. were, you know, two weeks, people would come over. Yeah. And interestingly enough, um, it wasn't uncommon, and, and it was Brian McNiff telling me this, that, uh, you know, you would hear people, no problem, singing the sash and then singing, uh, you know, Molly O, the, the, the nationalist version and so on and so <laughs> forth. But as soon as the troubles kicked in, then yeah, that all stopped, you know. Yeah. And um, But, uh, yeah, there was a huge mm. connect with, right, with Glasgow, yeah. yeah. Much so. yeah. Now, it's come up in the conversation already, right, but the, the, the obvious thing looking at that line is that partition is going to cut a swathe through that network. And, and, of course, the pro I mean, I presume the problem is straight away that many of those lines, they don't just cross the border once, they cross in and out mm -hmm. several times. Is that right, Hugh? I mean, yes, absolutely. On the Great Northern Railway line, which went um, from Enniskillen through Clonus and out to Dundalk, the Irish Northwestern line, which the famous um, Bindon Express ran over, the railway crossed the border no less than eight times in that journey. Um, now there, there's a wee problem for the Brexit negotiators at the moment, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very topical. Yeah, yeah, but it crossed it all those times. And um, even the Bindoran Belik line, as you saw in the film, it crossed it twice around Belik and Pettico. Um, so um, it was very, very disruptive to the train, so. And you had the customs posts, you had the, the, the train held. I can remember as a wee boy coming to Bindoran in 1957 uh, with the customs men taking people's suitcases apart to see if they had butter or maybe a copy of the News of the World because Mr De Valera didn't like it or whatever. And, um, you know, it was very, very disruptive. And partition, if you look at it in a historical perspective, probably did destroy the railways into Donegal and, in fact, 
north and west of the whole Baltimore. Just before we go on to that, can I come to you, um, uh, Jonathan, just a particular incident about this thing crisscrossing the border, mm. the, the infamous uh, Clonus Affray. Just yes. ta- tell us about that. Right. Uh, basically, the treaty was signed in uh, uh, at number 10 Downing Street on um, the 6th of December 1921. The treaty debates then became very bitter in the Doyle. And... Um, uh, Michael Collins in particular was very anxious. He saw the split coming and he wanted to constantly prove his Republican credentials. So he encouraged the Belfast boycott of, of goods coming from Belfast and he uh, he uh, took advantage of the fact that uh, Lloyd George decided to release Republican prisoners from Ballykinler camp <coughs> in Belfast. So the Northern Command uh, was very strong in County Monaghan, led by... Uh, uh, the 5th Northern Division Commander, Dan Hogan. And uh, <coughs> they made several raids across the border. Uh, and um, uh, there was a major invasion on the 7th of February where they, they took about 40 orange men, or, or Protestants generally. And um, then they decided... Uh, they decided on an operation. There, were going to, there was going to be an execution of three prisoners in Derry Jail. They had... Uh, murdered a a, a prison guard uh, with chloroform, two prison guards with chloroform. So they pretended to be footballers. But of course, when they were stopped and arrested, they all had arms and so on. So they were were in trouble. Which kind of match you're going to, I suppose. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, sorry, Jonathan. Keep on going. Right. Uh, Basically, uh, it it was decided to send um, special constabulary uh, to Enniskillen. And they were transferred. These were full-time temporary specials, A specials, and they were transferred from Newton Arns to Belfast. Then they went from Belfast uh, to Enniskillen. But instead of taking a line north of the border, they took the line that you were talking uh, talking about. It went through Monaghan. And in fact, it stopped at Clonus because they had to change engines. And while that happened, the local IRA man, uh, a man called Fitzpatrick, rounded up as many volunteers as he could, including Thompson uh, submachine guns. And uh, <coughs> they saw the A specials either on the platform or, or not. And uh, Fitzpatrick went up to, um, uh, th- uh, to one of the specials and said, uh, surrender. And he was shot through the head and killed. And then a a fierce battle occurred on the platform in the train, uh, leading uh, to the deaths of, of, uh, I I think it was in the end, four people. But it it did illustrate uh, the problems of going through uh, uh, lines going (laughs) north and south of of the border. Just, yeah, I did. Uh, the, uh, the two two of the prisoners that were in Derry Jail were actually Bundoran men, yeah. Thomas McShee and uh, right. and uh, Patrick Johnson. Um, Thomas McShee, he went on. I think he's the only Bundoran man to serve as a senator as well. But he was uh, very active in the uh, local uh, IRA volunteers. So was. I I, I uh, spoke to uh, a man who was there. He, he was a boy, actually. His father was the RIC sergeant, and he had previously arrested Fitzpatrick. And Patrick Fitzpatrick said, "Thank you for saving my life on a particular occasion." But he was shot dead on that occasion. And uh, little Patrick Shea, son of the RIC sergeant, um, 
he wrote his memoirs later. He wrote, as soon as the train stopped, Commandant Fitzpatrick, who was in charge of the army contingent, walked revolver in hand to the compartment in which the specials were. He called on them to surrender and come out and was immediately shot dead. Hell was then let loose. Bullets poured into the carriage containing the specials. Passengers cried out in terror, jumped from the train and ran in all directions. It was all over in a few minutes. In the shattered carriage, the sergeant and three of the constables lay dead. Uh, the RIC Sergeant Patrick Shea, uh, he actually got a van and took uh, uh, the wounded north of the border. And Patrick Shea, his son, who wrote that and witnessed it, uh, he became the most senior Catholic in the Northern Ireland Civil Service uh, and uh, uh, wrote his memoir, Voices and the Sound of Drums. Just, just before I bring Mark in there, just to say, uh, by the way, I was serious about this being a school and, and uh, the need to do a bit of work here, guys. So if you have any questions or contributions you want to make, you know, don't be shy. Put your hand up and, and uh, I'll bring you in uh, and you can, you can quiz the panel here. Sorry, Mark, you want to come yeah, in Yeah, just uh, when, when Jonathan was mentioning the Orangemen there, uh, I interviewed a, a local uh, former politician and he was telling me his grandfather was a driver for the railway station. I think it might have, the, this might have taken place in the railway bar, but um, they said, oh, you'll you'll take us home tonight, Paddy. And he says, if it was up to me, I'd drive you into the sea. And he was sacked there on the spot. That was it, you know, so. <laughs> now, just looking at this map, and it, okay, partition has been mentioned here, right, uh, as, as the death knell of the railways. But the only thing, guys, they, they, they kept going for another 35 years, Hugh. So what, mm. I, what the question I want to do, I want to focus in on how, first of all, how, how did they run at all, given the, the logistical and political problems with lines crisscrossing uh, the border in and out several times? And like, is it, was it a foregone conclusion that they were, that they were going to disappear? This is the point. Um, I don't think it was a foregone conclusion. They were very resourceful. For example, the County Donegal Railways brought in diesel rail cars, which stopped anywhere to pick you up. And they had the very first diesel rail car in the whole of Europe running in 1931. Now, what do you mean by a diesel rail car? Right. Explain. A diesel rail car is like a bus and rails, basically, and that's how they started. They bought a couple of old buses. Um, they were altered up at uh, Straban, O'Doherty, the coach builders, who, who's still there, and they basically had a bus-like engine, uh, the doors at the front and the sides, and you paid the driver when you got on, long before we had that but in the, the buses. Driver, the driver no steering wheel, though. No, you didn't, well, you don't, have to, you don't have to steer a train. The beautiful thing is it steers <laughs> yeah. itself. It had a clutch and gearbox, and you can see one running today on the Fintown Railway. There's one running up there in the summer, the rail car up there. Uh, I travelled on the Cowderigal rail car from um, Ballyshannon to Rosnaula, in 1959 as a wee boy of nine, and they were absolutely amazing pieces of apparatus. So they were resourceful. They also combined services with, with the buses. And many of you will remember the Great Northern Railway of Ireland buses that ran here. They integrated with the trains. They didn't compete with them. And also they had containers that you could lift off a wagon and put in a lorry and deliver directly. But road, lor road lorries and cars did begin to appear by the 1930s, and they always had to work very hard. The thing that really bailed them out was World War II. Because of petrol rationing in the Republic uh, and other fuel rationing, they always came into their own and were very, very busy. The problem is they weren't invested in, and after the war, they were pretty well exhausted. So I know you don't want to go into that bit. No, no, yeah. I, 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 but um, yeah. basically, they kept going because they linked the country. They brought a lot of... Um, there's a lot of good social points. And I think as a community, 
we need to stop looking at railways just as money-making businesses. They have a social role to play in connecting people and doing that efficiently, and also today environmentally. And I think that's something in 1957, nobody thought that way. And a lot of people did think they were old fashioned. So not old fashioned at all, but they needed to adapt to the circumstances. Can I, can I come back to Hugh later? But yeah. I, wonder, I want to bring uh, Jonathan in first. Yeah. Just uh, again, I want to just be, be, I want to postpone this idea that the closure is inevitable and look at okay. the period when they seemed that they actually worked, mm. right? What's the political background of this? Because you're talking about uh, the, uh, companies operating across two jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's certain legal issues, political issues. So how did it work in the period before the Second World War, say? I, I think the, the uh, unionist governments were uh, uh, very uh, curled-lipped about having any services that went anywhere near the border. And uh, therefore, uh, they tended to, to regard railways as being a bit old-fashioned and roads and buses and cars, they were, they, they were the future. And uh, uh, you could you get a local illustration of that. Uh, you, you saw a, a rather good coverage there of the, uh, the, the Battle of the... Belique Petticoat Triangle mm -hmm. uh, in 1922. Um, and um, this proved that uh, going by road uh, b between Belique and um, ooh, Kesh or whatever it was mm -hmm. uh, meant that you had to, to go through some Irish, Southern Irish territory. Uh, you know, going by Petticoat. So that, that Bow Island Road was built on the orders of the unionist government, heavily subsidised mm. uh, uh, to, to, to avoid uh, anybody having to go into the Irish Free State. Mm. But, I mean, but what, what, sort of, you know, what sort of cooperation was there behind the scenes, though, between the two governments? I mean, there must have been, or even, even local councils. Like well, to, you, to you do get quiet cooperation on things like electricity, uh, sharing electricity, you get quite, you get very good, uh, you've had a head school on this before, uh, good cooperation um, on, on, on the building of the hydroelectric dam in, in, uh, um, at, at Ballyshannon. And uh, at the same time, um, uh, we were being told uh, earlier about uh, cooperation um, over the, over the uh, saving of the Great Northern Line, the line between Dublin and Belfast. Really, you're the expert on this. Yeah, I think you should you, speak you, about you it. You can come in on that now. Um, yeah, just we're up to the 50s here yeah. now, right? Because remember, the background to this is you've got this megaphone diplomacy of the Anti-Partition League, etc., yeah. right? On one hand, yes. you've got this uh, substantial cooperation with the Earn Scheme uh, happening, mm. you know, mm. in contradiction to that, yeah. right? We, are, we now and know. And Sean Lamass was important in that, yeah. I think. Yeah, mm. and, and, then, but, and then, so what's mm. happened with the railways? Well, maybe just come back in a point that was made there. In 1933, all the railway men in Ireland went in strike. The companies couldn't really afford to give them a pay rise, so they went in strike. And in Northern Ireland, it was a 100% strike, and it nearly brought down the Northern Ireland government. Now, that's 11 years after partition. And the mentality of the unionist politicians was, this is never going to happen again. And it's generally felt that from that day onwards, they wanted to get rid of the railways in Northern Ireland. And by inference, here as well. Um, basically, by the 50s, they are forced to cooperate because in 1953, the company here, the Great Northern Rail Rail Railway of Ireland, went completely bankrupt and they said to both governments, we will close next week. So this concentrated mines and storming in Dublin enormously and they bought out the company shareholders and they formed what was called the Great Northern Railway Board. The Great Northern Railway Board ran the railway and basically... However, 
the Northern Government um, said to the South at that point, we will not continue this beyond 1958. And while we're at it, in 1956, we will close every line that crosses the border. And the fate of the Bandon line and all the lines to Clonus was sealed at that point. Now, um, do you want me to go on to mention just, uh, uh, that? No. Do you want to say this? Do you want to just yeah, go to the map well, there? Yeah, yeah there's the map. This, yeah. There's a time map. Let's right. go back to 1925 yeah. here. That, yeah. That's basically the network yeah. at its that's height. That's the network at its height, yeah. 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 I, and, and you see, you see that in the border area and round here, there's plenty of railways to Clonus, to Carrick Macross, from Dundalk, west and north, Donegal, the Sligo, Leitrim and northern counties. By 1940, it's all there still. Yeah. And just go ahead. And by 1945, you'd be you're beginning to see some branch lines closing. Uh, and right after the war, if you go into 1950, the letter Kenny and Buttonport's gone, yeah. the Carn Donner's gone, and by 1955, most the, the, the Glentis line's away, uh, the Derry Central line's gone, and you're beginning to see the branches disappearing. And if you take it on just a bit further, by 1960, there's the massive gap in the north and west. The, 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 the mm. bit of the, the Donegal Railway is still there, so you can still go from Ballyshan mm. up to Ballantra. No, it, it, it closed on the 1st the first of uh, the first of January 1960. Okay, so it actually went, yeah. So it actually was away, so and they replaced by buses. So 65, there you are. There, there's the gap. There's Clonus gone. And in 1965, the only thing left is the Derry Road, which runs up through Dungannon, Oman, and Straban. It served nationalist places, and they brought in a civil servant called Henry Benson in 1963, and he published a report which basically said, railways in Northern Ireland are finished, especially the line that goes through these nationalist parts in the West. And some people believe that the Unionist government was withdrawing east of the ban into a kind of fortress situation. And then, of course, that railway was closed in 1965. There's Donegal. That was the last bit of railway in Donegal, north of Straban. There it's all gone. And I ask you, have the unionists got what they want? Yes, they have. And they promised motorways all the way to Derry. We're still waiting to duel the A5 north of Ballygolly. Um, none of it's happened. And the railway map in Northern Ireland is very basic. They actually were going to close the line into Derry until, of course, in 1969, the current round of troubles broke out and they thought it was quite, quite impolitic. They also wanted to close the line south to Dundalk. That's a very busy line today, the Enterprise Express. It was a symbol of linking the country. They actually tried to close it. And Chorus Jon Perern, CIE, said, that's fine, we're running all the way to Belfast. But they couldn't actually stomach that. It was politically uh, problematical. And we've still got two railway, railway jurisdictions. We've got Northern Ireland Railways and we've got Ian Rodern. We should have one simple railway operator um, and that would certainly help things. Jonathan, would you go along with that? I mean, in terms of, the, 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 do you think that the Stormont government should bear the, the, the odium for, uh, had a policy that was anti-rail or anti-West of the ban? Um, well, well, I'd say it's anti, uh, definitely anti-rail. That mm. Benson was um, uh, E even more draconian uh, than his English equivalent who's beaching. beaching. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, th th there's no doubt that, that when they had these great plans in the 1960s that they were going to develop uh, Craig Avon mm. and uh, uh, I I industries around Belfast because they decided Belfast was growing too, too much, uh, Derry was totally overlooked. Mm. Now, was mm. that 
was that a conscious decision? It doesn't really appear in the cabinet minutes, you know. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, you sort of feel it's sort of happening in their brains. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, so, that's, that's still been debated already yeah, anyway, so, uh, by historians. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't go as far as you, but uh, you know, it's it's, it's <laughs> we don't want yeah. too much agreement on yeah. uh, high school panels. Well, yeah. you see, this man lives in Belfast, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Um, it's a pleasure to see you back again. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a coincidence, but the first of my ancestors that came up from County Clare to Fermanagh came as a head schoolmaster. So you're following the tracks, but I think uh, something needs a little bit of uh, explanation. Is the situation in Bleak? where they built Roscoe Bridge and I think three bridges between uh, across the Bow Island uh, so, so that the f forces would not have to go through that little portion in Clyhoe of Donegal. Mm. Well now, that was a fallacy because as long as I remember, if the police wanted to go to uh, point duty on the Inniskillen Road to walk through that, during the war, the um, notorious and infamous uh, Home Guard found their platoon and marched through the Free State the uh, a lovely wee character from home now, uh, his nickname was Bubbles. He was in the Home Guard. When he finished work, he shouldered his rifle, walked down Bleak Street, walked across the border over the Slaters, and nobody ever interfered with him. Mm. I don't know if there's any other place along the border where you have as many sort of uh, concessions, things like that. Uh, people coming from uh, the west of Ireland uh, to Loch Derg, uh, they were permitted to go from Bleak to Pedigo, but shouldn't stop. Uh, that was called a concession road. Um, and then uh, you weren't supposed to stop uh, uh, the little portion from the Pottery and Bleak over the, the, the Inniskillen Road. So the, the, the idea like that um, there was any thing to accommodate the British Armed Forces like was a fallacy. In practice, it's completely different altogether. Mm -hmm. So it's um, quite, quite amusing that. Like, in Just the, while you have the, the mic there, will you tell us the story of Packy the Ghost, the smuggling story? Is it what, what was it? You know, some character. It's in in in, in your book, Joe. <laughs> One of the books. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, Ghost Duffy. Yes. Yeah. Well, he he lived between Garrison and Belcoo, and he was a fairly uh, professional smuggler. But one night he was caught uh, by the police, and whatever cattle he had um, was seized. So what did Duffy do? He got on his bicycle and he cycled over the mountain in a skillin which would, be, would have taken him maybe an hour, an hour and a half. He booked into a lodging house there and um, uh, spent the night there. And when the case came up with the petty sessions in Bleak, uh, the, 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 the cross-examine came and the, the, the landlady from the guest house said, he spent the night at me, he couldn't possibly have been there. So somebody, the case was dismissed, not only that, but I think he got his cattle back. <laughs> but uh, the... Um, the constable's question, are you sure now you've seen uh, James Duffy there? Well, he says, if it wasn't him, it was his ghost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could I, just, could I just go back to this thing, because you touched on it, Hugh. I mean, you kind of gave him a very impassioned speech there for rail, right? But the thing is, this closed line of, of lines... Okay, let's look at the thing south of the border, right? Uh, CIE was set up in the late 40s mm -hmm. to amalgamate the, the, yeah. the rest of the railways, right? Mm -hmm. But that didn't stop them from closure. Mm -hmm. No, um, CIE kept a main core of lines, as you can see, from Dublin to Cork, out to Galway, to Ballina. Um, they did close very controversially in 1960, the West Cork lines. And they also eventually, in 1961, closed down the very last narrow-gauge railway, the West Clare, um, in uh, that year. So they did prune the network. But I do think that if 
Donegal had been in the Republic, I think the very least you would have had is a railway to Enniskillen, a town of that size. And maybe you could have kept the Bundoran line for use only in the summer. Um, the, 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 the surgery down south had to take place because some lines weren't profitable at all and they did close them. But you actually have a very close railway service here down at Sligo with seven trains a day to Dublin. Um, I think if the Northern Ireland had been administering it, you wouldn't have had a line to, to there at all. Um, we've gone a kind, through a kind of fashion in railways. It happened in Britain as well. Dr Beeching came along and tried to close them all and it was stopped, if you like. And out of that, he developed intercity travel, he developed a bulk freight, and railways do things like that very well indeed, and they move large numbers of people well. But I think if you look at it, and you look at the way the world is changing environmentally, there's an enormous thing we could be having there. Um, so yes, they shut things in the Republic, but conversely, they're busy building new lines, as you were saying, in Dublin. Yeah, my, at the um, end of my street, you know, I'm, I'm watching the Lewis, the new Lewis line. Yeah. Been, you know, yeah. the, 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 it's practice runs, but it's kind of an odd thing just to say something positive. I have to look out your door and see a new train at the end of your street. As everybody in Donegal knows, that's because they get everything in Dublin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's Northside Dublin. Not, this is Northside Dublin now, right? We, we're oppressed as well. Um, no, but see, just just going on that wider question, Hugh. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what's the what's the what's the science in terms of how efficient is it to transport people by train vis-à-vis -vis road transport today? Right? Yeah. In terms of CO two emissions, yeah. environmental mm -hmm. impacts, etc., yeah. etc. In CO two emissions, environmental impact. The more people you put in the train, um, the less is the emission per person, basically. Um, we already heard the diesel story from Volkswagen. We already heard about the banning of diesels because of particulates. Cars were set out as the answer to everything for everybody's transport. And yes, they give us freedom. And yes, they get us there efficiently, but an enormous cost. And railways are far safer. They're the safest mode of land transport. Um, far Why are they so expensive? Ah, this is the thing. No, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I was just thinking, political attitudes uh, are, are, are crucial here. If you go to Italy and you get on a train, and even if, if, if you book a week beforehand, it's unbelievably cheap. And their railway lines go all over the place. You could say that this goes back to Mussolini, who first of all insisted that trains uh, uh, appear on time. But nevertheless, he regarded it uh, and those who came after him after the Second World War regarded railways as a kind of social service. Uh, and uh, you get much the same kind of attitude in France. Mm -hmm. in, in the Netherlands, it's easy because the population is so dense there that uh, that uh, you have to have really good railways. It's the most densely populated part of Europe outside of London. Yeah. Um, uh, so, sorry. Um, so political attitudes are, are crucial. Again, you know, lack of initiative. Why did Dublin never get an underground system? You know, Prague has one. Um, uh, they, in Belfast, it was always the excuse, ah, oh, Belfast is built, built on water, but that's absolute nonsense. Uh, that, that it's uh, an engineering impossibility to have an underground system. Mark, can I go back to you, right? Yeah. Because, okay, you very argued very forcefully that the railway made uh, Bundorn, right? Mm. Um, I mean, I was a child grown up here in the 60s, right? And there was no sign that Bundorn was, was, uh, uh, had gone quiet as a result of the, the, the railway going away. No, so, I, well, quite a, one 
reason for that would be the buses took over and uh, the urn bus service then picked up where the railways left off. So it was ferrying thousands of people. Um, and in actual fact, if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Shin, didn't uh, the, what do you call it, uh, the Ulster bus, they only stopped coming to Bundoran last year or something like that, wasn't it? Oh, one one service, okay. But uh, I have a good account of, excuse me, um, uh, a woman who travelled on the bus. Coming down Finner uh, Strait was a special moment because as we hurtled uh, along at enormous speed in the shaky old bus, the passengers raised a cheer for the tricolour flying over Finner Camp. In the early 50s, yeah, of course. uh, In the early 50s during a national... um, Election, De Valera was due to visit Bundoran on a Sunday night. All the urn buses lined up opposite O'Gorman Arms and waited for two hours past departure to let the northern passengers have a glimpse of the national hero. We yelled, up Dev, all the way home that night. You know, so. so it was the buses. You know. Right. Now, anyone in the audience want to come in there? Uh, any more contributions? Uh, we're just looking at the clock here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it was just a throwaway remark, I think, by Jonathan there. We said um, the coming of the railways destroyed the linen industry. Um, the reason I'm asking this domestic is... Domestic linen industry, not the linen industry. Oh, sorry? It, it was the domestic linen industry Small rather than the, than the factories. And Could the you just expand on that a wee bit? I, I, I missed right. the, the point uh, the great, that. The great centre of linen production in the 18th century and the early 19th century uh, stretched from Monaghan up to Dungannon, um, and across uh, to Ballymena, uh, taking in uh, Banbridge as well. It's the densest r- uh, populated area of Ireland, it, of rural Ireland. And there you've, you've thousands of cottages producing yarn and cloth uh, on hand looms, on spinning wheels. Um, but then once, uh, obviously, once you start making cotton by machinery, which began in Manchester and was transferred to Belfast as well in the 18, uh, uh, early 1800s, uh, that threatens linen. Um, uh, one, uh, and then the, the difficulties of spinning flax by steam or by water were overcome uh, by about 1830. Um, and then... This coincides with the introduction of railways. And so very quickly, that uh, population of mid-Ulster became impoverished because they couldn't sell their linen or their labour at at any kind of reasonable price. Uh, But the upside of it was uh, that uh, that places like Upperlands and Guildford uh, and Sign Mills, they they were able to use the railways to bring in coal, to bring in Russian flax, uh, and to manufacture linen in the modern way. So it's a, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, I suppose, yeah. really, the rail. How, how many people are there in the audience who, who would admit having travelled on the train in these parts? Just curious. <laughs> That's a fair few. Yeah. I didn't know you were that old, fair Jerry. Few, a fair few child prodigies. How many people <laughs> ever got a smut in their eye? Or even know what a smut in your eye is? You got a smut in your eye? Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Um, when I when I travelled all the way to Bendon uh, in June 1957, I was very excited, and I was looking out the window. The train, the engine was blasting away up the, the up, up from Bendon Junction, where there was a gradient to get up. Uh, they had to use a lot of coal. Some of it didn't burn completely, so it came out the chimney and it flew straight into my eye. And I got a row from my mother, of course. And then my mother attacked me. It was very embarrassing by licking a hanky 
and trying to rub it out. Oh, and not, the, not, the, not the dab in the house. Jesus. The, yeah, exactly. Oh, heavens, you know. <laughs> I, I had a very deprived childhood. And um, basically, it happened all the time on steam railways. They were quite dirty inside. But if you go to the continent, if you go to the expense of Lewis or the dart down in Dublin, they're electric. And there's the answer. Clean, efficient, quiet. And could we not have a nice electrified railway bringing the, the people from Glasgow again in, in Spindorn? so they could give the guards a hard time for two weeks like they used to. <laughs> um, it's just a thought. But that's a smut in the eye. It's a, sm it's a smutty story. <laughs> um, Hugh might be able to confirm this for me, but uh, the introduction of the 24-hour clock was because there was a man who was, he missed his train in Bundorn, mm -hmm. and he, it was, the train was due to leave at 9 o'clock or yeah. whatever. But, so yeah. then when he missed it, is, is, yeah. do you know any more about that? Yeah, 24-hour clocks were actually brought in on the continent many years before here. And it is said that the difference between AM and PM here and, and summer, double summer time, yeah. um, they wanted to, 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 to sort that. Um, and the other thing that's quite interesting about Pindorn is that some of you who are old enough will remember 1966, it was the 50th anniversary of the rising. And CIE, who were then running the buses, decided they'd put all the destinations in Irish. And for a whole week, nobody knew where the buses were going in Ireland, <laughs> not even the crews. And uniquely in Donegal, they actually kept English destinations. And even today, I saw... Uh, the Sligo Derry bus coming up with a bilingual destination. There you are. But you're quite right about the clock. Yeah. We've made a bit of railway history here, and that's a good example. And by the way, the uh, Ireland was half an hour behind uh, uh, the rest of the United Kingdom until 1916, when that half hour was done away with. Yeah, that's right. Hello. Hello. Uh, hello. Uh, my name's Joe Doherty here from Mondorn. And uh, uh, was my uncle, my uncle used to take uh, bicycles, he used to sell bicycles, he had a bicycle shop in Mundorn, and he used to bring them to Mundorn, or from Mundorn to Ballyshan on the train. Mm. And you mentioned the tricolour there, Mark. Yep. He, it was, he, it was, he, was the, he, he was the first man into funeral camp, him and a boy called uh, Murphy, I think he was a barber here. They were the first two men to put the tricolour up in funeral camp mm. when the Brits left it. First two, they were the first two men. Still. And uh, a lot of all, uh, also about uh, a thing there about uh, Peter Head in Glasgow. Mm. Uh, Poppy Johnston was a cousin of my father's, and it was my it was a, it was my uncle Patrick that uh, him and a few of them they got uh, uh, Pete, uh, uh, he was sentenced to death. I think in, in Peter Head. I think him and McShay. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. It was the breakout of Derry Jail, the but it, yeah. it failed. Mm -hmm. and it, yeah. it, was, it was my uncle Patrick that uh, mm -hmm. arrested a few people around here, unions and that, and, and got them, and got them uh, I think it was five years, mm -hmm. down, to, down to five years. I think they got out then because of the peace thing. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Mark would know that probably. Yeah. Thank you. Sure, Sue. Any, anyone who, any of the people who are actually on the trains here, just curious if you any, have you any stories about you know, where you were going or what kind of journeys you, you, you took? Would be interesting to hear any stories? on that. Um, okay, while you're composing your thoughts on that. Mark, I was just talking, it's some discussion I had with you before this about the parallels with, with, the, with the current Brexit situation, yeah. right, of, of, of borders, because it seems this, this is like a Groundhog Day. This thing goes round and round. Yeah. Right? Just when we think we've come up with some sort of solution, like the last few years where the border has essentially disappeared, yeah. it, it, is, it is now 
hoving into view yet again. Always and ever. Uh, this is where I get a little bit exercised because, you know, I, I work in Derry, so I, I cross the border. And, you know, if the idea that I'd have to produce my passport going to work on this on the island is, is absolutely ridiculous. But what really pisses me off, and sorry to use this language, but the idea that some toff over in England who's for for giggles, puts his manhood in a pig's mouth. You know, he gets to decide the fate of uh, of uh, thousands of people who live along the border. I mean, 40% of our students uh, in Derry come from the Republic. Brexit is just an unmitigated disaster. It is just, I, I can't see any benefit in any way unless you're Nigel Farage, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I'll have to edit myself here because, yeah. you know... Yeah. Uh, no, but there, I mean, there are uncanny parallels here, right? I mean, we've talked about the, the, you know, the you know, partition, what it did to the, the, the rail network, you know. Yes, I, I, I mean, um, it, it, first of all, it, it created lawlessness along much of the border, which Mark has written yeah. about, yeah. Uh, on a truly massive scale. And, uh, you know, the troubles that uh, uh, um, erupted uh, in 1969 also created, recreated that. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you get... You get uh, um, much of South Armagh all along there uh, and the um, northern part of Leinster as well uh, becoming a massive smuggling and diesel uh, yeah. altering uh, yeah. area Still you is. Know? yes yeah. and uh, what will what will happen I, I, I thought I would write an, a letter to the Times newspaper I said I live in Belfast, but I have uh, a little house on the Moy Road and I have a boat at uh, Larine, uh, which is in County Leitrim. I have a 19-foot boat. I have a five-horsepower engine, but I also have an electric engine. So I could take migrants or, uh, uh, yeah. along the lake and then you see when you when you, the border actually goes through Loch Melvin yeah. when you get to the border you, you, you transfer from your outboard to electric and then uh, make your way to Garrison which is not noted for being uh, uh, the, the, the most uh, uh, enthusiastic about uh, Brexit yeah. and uh, there's going to be no problems the only trouble would be that if I started that business it would quickly be taken over by uh, quasi-paramilitaries <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just uh, the efficiency of the railway was uh, illustrated to me. I was in Ballinrobe and was in a fish shop, and the man said, "You know, my father, he used to send a card to London on Wednesday night, and the fish would arrive from Billingsgate on very early on Friday morning for people buying fish." And of course, my response was, well, why weren't you buying fish from Killy Beggs? Why weren't you <laughs> buying it from London? But there was that extraordinary, uh, I mean, in a way, it, it, the extraordinary speed of communications that railways brought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing, you know, we haven't touched on it yet, but uh, the smuggling, and um, which was a, a huge part of, I mean, uh, of uh, this area as well. Um, Apparently, it wasn't uncommon for a woman to come down to Bundoran single and go back the next day nine months pregnant, you know, so this was a common occurrence. And uh, th this is where the real crack starts, and I, I guarantee there's plenty of people here with plenty of stories about that, you know. So Just to finish off on this, right, how much of the, the, the infrastructure is left, right? Because I know, for example, in Dublin, when the 
the, the original Lewis was put back in place, they were able to reuse a lot of the old uh, Harcourt Street line because mm. a lot of the stations yeah, had right. been had been sold off. But yeah. good chunk of the line was already there. So if you look at all the, the, the mm. some of these things that he walked across in, in the in the documentary previously, yeah. is it still there? Who owns it? And what what is being done with it, or what could be done with it? Well, it was all sold off very very quickly. Uh, the Northern Ireland government sold it off. It was said so it could never be reopened. Um, but you find the stations at Pettigo there, Ballyshannon's there, Irvinstown's there, um, Castle Caldwell, and most of the bridges would need to be replaced, but that's not impossible because in Scotland two years ago, they reopened the Borders Railway, which was closed in 1969, and they simply bulldozed anything that was in the way, they rebuilt it, and that is one of the most successfully reopened railways in Europe. So if there's a will, there's a way. But are you saying that a lot of the lines, right, uh, that have been sold off into private yeah. hands, have they yeah. disappeared? I mean, is the, yeah. is the actual physical infrastructure still there? Um, you will find large parts of it. Some farmers have ploughed it into the field. Uh, for example, I came through Castle Caldwell, uh, coming down here, and there's a bridge just sitting by itself yeah. with no track on the other side. Yeah. But yeah. other parts of the line you can walk, as Barra did, for quite a bit along. Mm. And you find some viaducts are still there. You find a lot of the station infrastructure. Um, so there's a lot to go out and see and relive the past that way. They haven't disappeared into the landscape entirely. And it's worth doing, having a look at them. Um, you know, as you go through Barnesmore Gap, like oh, I would yeah. have loved to have taken that rail journey because yeah. it looks yeah. absolutely stunning, you know. Um, yeah. the There aren't that many vestiges of uh, of the railway station here in Bundoran, but the uh, the what do you call it, the bypass actually mm. follows the old the railway line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So no, but because it, it, it struck me that, that I mean, I, I was just on, in the film there in terms of the the ecological thing that mm. these now become like these linear nature reserves. Oh almost. yeah, yeah. Because yeah. now in Dublin there's this thing called the Bee Line, a part of an old railway line, mm. which now they keep yeah. bees and they're, they're using as a kind of a, an ecological park. Mm. You know. And, and the spread of, of buzzards, mm. uh, it started off in Rathlin Island, and now uh, there are quite a lot of them about here. Uh, but they've actually used uh, motorway margins mostly mm. for travelling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, guys, I'm just like, yeah, anyone else want to come in here? Yeah, I just get the, the mic here. Sure. Just, one, just two points. Is I'm looking at the map of the, the railway system, mm. and it's a bit ironic that it was called the permanent way. <laughs> the, ra the railway tracks were called the permanent way, mm. but they were anything but permanent. Mm. You mentioned earlier as well about the suspicion that the British built the railway to suit their military purposes. But it was also suspected, I suppose, that the IRA in their time tried to use the railway for their purposes. And I'm thinking mm. about my own grandfather who was a guard on the train in, uh, in Eskillen. Mm. And it was suspected that he was bringing information between the different stations to what they call the felons. And they raided his home and they found uh, a copy of him publicked. And on the back of that then, he was arrested and was interned uh, for two years in Larne Harbour, in the, um, the workhouse there. Yeah. And it is to the internal credit of the GNR that when he was released, that they re-employed him. Mm. In 1924, he was in for two years. But they did re-employ him. And my own father, actually, the GNR, and an uncle and an aunt as well, all got jobs with the GNR. Thank you. Was there somebody else there? Yeah. yeah. Uh, with reference to smuggling, part of the smuggling took place in the West End when the ladies would come in who came off the sugar trains. We had a grocery shop in the West End, 
and they would come in to buy what they couldn't get in the north because of the war. Uh, when they would have bought their butter and sugar and tea and things, everything else, and tobacco, uh, they would go down the back of the shop. And the back of the shop was used for undertaking, where my uncle <laughs> kept all the coffins. <laughs> so they all went down the back and they had big petticoats with uh, pockets lined in them and they'd stuff the stuff down into this. Now, you always knew when the new ladies arrived because when they'd see these coffins, they'd start to squeal. And my uncle would say, oh, that's a new lot. They'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah, just, back, behind, just behind you there. And in the front. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just a question. I think uh, maybe Hugh mentioned it about the, the safety aspect of railways. Uh, and Barra's documentary, it mentioned the Armagh disaster. Uh, in this, in the Northwest, was it generally a good safety record or...? Um, yeah, yeah sa safety was very good here. Um, the County Donegal Railway said have one dreadful head-on smash in 1949 when the train from Ballyshannon, uh, a rail car, very light vehicle, uh, ran into a steam train. And uh, there were three people killed, the, the driver and two ladies and several people very badly injured. And the reason why that happened was they become very slack in working the single line and they hadn't followed procedures. But over and above that, there was a train in 1925 on the Lost Willie Railway going to Creeslaw and right out to the Rosses, which was blown right off the Owen Carroll Viaduct. And you can still see the remains of the Owen Carroll Viaduct, the piers of it. It was blown right off it. Um, but over and above that, they were pretty safe. And the Great Northern Railway of Ireland, in particular on this line, had a wonderful reputation. So I think if they brought it back, you'd still be quite safe to go on a trip. Now, does anyone else want to come in here before we wrap up? Yeah, just yeah, do it here. Yeah. Why did they never develop a line between Sligo and Donegal? That's a good question, I've, yeah. I've, I've, yeah. I've, I've got that for you. Um, it actually was approved in 1862. Um, hold on, I have it here somewhere. But it, and it was flagged uh, by the, um, the J.P. McNeil, was it the... the um, the MP? Yes, yeah. that's right. So I have it here somewhere. Uh, but... Yeah, so it never materialised, but he um, he brought it up and he he said uh, in um, he brought it up in Parliament. He said, "I beg to ask the Attorney General of for Ireland if it has come under his notice that a memorial from Bundoran, County Donegal, was forwarded to the government in November last, uh, praying for the construction of a light railway from Sligo to Bundoran, and that two very influential meetings were held on January 1st at the villages of Tullahan and Cliffany, calling on the government for employment uh, by the construction of said railway. The response was the, go uh, the government have no funds uh, which would enable them to take any steps to like you know. So, so the, again, we're talking about a light railway there, not, yeah. not, not the full... Yeah. Yeah. Well, when the line was originally promoted, it was built by the company, the Enniskillen, Bendon and Sligo Railway Company, and in 1866, it opened to here. They basically ran out of funds, so they stopped it here. So it should have gone all the way to Sligo. And the idea was to go down through Sligo on the line that's now closed, right down to Limerick, down the West Coast. So you would have had this whole West Coast railway. But I think we'll just have to dream about it. Yeah. OK, just one last question here. 
So any idea of what it would cost to reinstate the main parts of the railway line, say, compared to building new roads? And the overall cost of maintaining that <laughs> over a period. There's a simple question. <laughs> um, um, it's fairly expensive to do. It's um, when they reopened the Borders railway line for 35 miles, it cost 228 million pounds. Um, and that is said, though, you can do it much more cheaply than that. So um, road is always going to be dearer to some extent because it takes up more space. Your dual carriageway takes up three times the space of a single track line. Yeah. And um, your earthworks are much bigger. So you could actually use large parts of the track beds here. And I think if we're serious, as, as we said earlier, politically, Ireland needs to get into the 21st century railway movement, which you do see all over the world, sadly except here, and sadly except in Scotland, where we have 40-year-old diesel trains running about in a daily business. It's so bad, railway enthusiasts are paying to go on them, just enjoy them. So if the will's there, you get the money. And luckily, Ireland's still in the EC, and that's a great boon when you're looking for funds. Uh, it's interesting that, that, that uh, in... in Liberal and Conservative governments alike refused to subsidise any railways uh, in Britain, but they did subsidise railways in Ireland. And one of the first was they were building the line from Portadown to Armagh, and they gave the, the company £20,000. That doesn't sound very much, but it must be about... Uh, 20 million nowadays and then of course the congested districts board you know all those light railways they were all pretty heavily subsidised uh, of course the aim was to kill home rule yeah. Okay I, I'm going to wrap things up here um, I'd just like to thank uh, our, our speakers here Jonathan Barden uh, Hugh Doherty and Mark Geegan and I'd like to thank you the audience in particular those people who made uh, a contribution from the floor uh, the next History Ireland High School will be in Dublin uh, in the middle of uh, October I can't remember the precise date uh, but we, we, we'll be looking at the small matter of the 500th anniversary of the uh, Reformation you know, we, we, we move around a lot in this uh, business. Uh, next head school in this part of the world will be at the Allingham Festival on Saturday the 11th of November. And uh, we will be actually discussing the man himself. We'll be having a discussion on uh, William Allingham. You know, was he, was he any good as a poet? That's, a, that's what I'll be asking. Uh, uh, as I look at the exit to get me out the door quickly if necessary. I uh, Just say thank you all for your attention. I hope you see you at a future head school. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.